1: Friend, in the Bible, Christ gave his life for his church. And Christ is not content until he finds us in the middle of the heart of God. Do you hear me? We are meant to be planted in the heart of God. And Christ is not content until we find our home in him.
2: That's Pastor Michael oxen and this is Reaching Your Heart. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, you can call at any time, 24-7, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Someone is standing by right now to take your phone call. We have a very special fundraising event and thank you dinner coming up this Sunday. And I'll have details on how you can attend. It will be in the Washington, D.C. area. So if you were here, we would love to have you there. So listen up and we'll have details as the program progresses. Here now is Pastor Michael Oxen Tanko with the first portion of a message he entitles The Marriage Feast. Today is reaching your heart.
1: Dear Father God, we are indebted to the cross of Christ We are grateful for Jesus in our life, and we want the Word of God in our life. So grant us the living Christ in these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Seventeen years ago, his wife, Janet, died suddenly of a heart attack. He loved her, and boom, just like that, she was gone. Her death left a massive hole in his life forever. He loved his wife, and he married her because he loved her. And she loved him, and he enjoyed every day of life with her. Life was life because his wife was there. And when she died, a part of him died too. David Howes is now over 70 years old, and his friends and family now know just how much he loved his wife. How did they figure it out? They figured it out by looking inside his field. He was a farmer. They looked in his field, and there was an evidence of his love right there in the field. That big heart carved out of that field of trees. That was for his wife. Mr. Howes owns a 112-acre farm, he dedicated a portion of it to his precious wife. He marked out a six-acre portion of the field in the form of a heart, and he put small hedges around the heart, and he planted the rest with small oaks. What's fascinating is the tip of the heart points toward the house of her childhood home, and so that heart is pointing toward the place that gave him his wife. And when he's alone, he wants to remember the wife he lost. He goes into the middle of that field and he finds her in the center of a heart that points home. Is that romantic? I mean, what a precious thing. Friend, in the Bible, Christ gave his life for his church. And Christ is not content until He finds us in the middle of the heart of God. Do you hear me? We are meant to be planted in the heart of God and Christ is not content until we find our home in Him. In the Bible, Jesus has returned to His Father's house. It's very clear. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. We know He went to His Father's house. He went to His Father's house to wait for the final judgment which is now in play, to stand before the God of the universe and to confess us one name at a time and to claim us for all eternity because of the cross of Christ, because he would not claim us here alone. There is a judgment in heaven before Jesus returns. So Christ can have the privilege of claiming us where his father's heart is found in his father's house. And this is really at the heart of the marriage feast teaching that Jesus gave in his parables. Take your Bibles, open them up to Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the marriage feast, but they would not come. And he sent others saying, tell those who are invited, behold, I've made ready my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves are killed and everything is ready. Come to the marriage feast. I mean, you can see the heart of the king in this text. He wants others to come because he has prepared something for his son. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son. A magnificent gift, a plan in the king's heart that is broad and wide, but for his son in terms of focus. Now, in the book of Daniel, how many of you guys study the book of Daniel sometimes? You do? Good. In the book of Daniel, chapter 2, which is that great outline time prophecy for us, the prophet Daniel describes the four great world empires in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a massive metallic man. Gold represents Babylon. Silver is Medo-Persia. Brass is Greece. Iron, the Roman Empire. And finally, modern Europe represented as ten toes of iron mixed with miry clay appears at the bottom of the image strong nations and weak nations. That's what it represents, together until the end. And the image of the world kingdom system, if you look at it, is an image of a man. Now why would it look like a man? It represents the king of the world, thus it is a man. You see, people can come up with ideas, people can come up with philosophies, they can engineer theologies, but in the end, nothing that man produces matters, because what will endure is the kingdom of God. And so the entire civilization of the human race, from Babylon to the end, is nothing but a metallic, image of a man. Now you look at that image it's top heavy. It's specific gravity is at the top. It should topple over. You look at the image, it gets ugly as you move toward the end. It loses its splendor as you move toward the end. That is what man's civilization will do. The four great world empires and the divided world of the toes is followed by the fifth and final kingdom. Now why would the final kingdom be the fifth kingdom? Because in the Bible the number for God's word is five the five books of Moses, the Torah, the five loaves, and two fishes. Because number five points to God's Word. God's kingdom is the kingdom that will be established upon the power, the authority, and the presence of the Word of God. Daniel 2.44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, nor shall its sovereignty be left to another people. And I like this next part. It shall break in pieces these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. God's kingdom is incompatible with the stuff that we're struggling with in life. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't like the way this world functions. Do you? I don't like it at all. I want to be in a place where different principles are there, where peace and love and joy rule. Verse 45. Just as you saw that a stone was cut out of a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is what? Sure. Now the Aramaic word for stone here is a wordplay on the Hebrew word for sun. The word for stone in Aramaic is ebon, the word for son is Ben. It's the Eben Ben wordplay. It's like the stone sun wordplay. It's not as good in English. The mountain represents the kingdom of God in heaven. And the son of God is the central part of the kingdom of heaven. Now we think of Jesus being the great gift of the church. The fact is Jesus came from heaven he was at the heart of all that heaven is and god gave jesus to us so that we would have heaven here so the last great world empire is the kingdom of heaven led by the son of god the fifth kingdom it will break in pieces all these other kingdoms in daniel 7 the kingdom of heaven is given to the son of man just like in daniel 2 there are four great world empires so if you look at daniel 7 it matches up pretty good You see, the lion in Daniel 7 corresponds to the head of gold. It's the kingdom of Babylon. The bear with two sides matches the chest of silver, the kingdom of Medo-Persia. The four-headed leopard is Greece that was divided in four parts after the death of Alexander. It matches the brass on the image, which was Greece. The fourth kingdom is a beast with great iron teeth and bronze claws. Iron was what represented the iron monarchy of Rome, of course, the fourth beast had iron teeth, as I said. Of course, the legs of iron on the image, the kingdom of Rome. So out of Rome grows ten horns, which match the ten toes on the image of Daniel 2. The ten horns are identified in Daniel 7, 24 as the ten kings that ruled during the Middle Ages. So the ten horns are followed by a little horn. And so the drama of Daniel 7 moves toward an Antichrist power, a little horn that usurps the dominion of Jesus Christ. It has eyes and a mouth like the Son of Man in the context, but it is not the Son of Man. So when you read Daniel 7, you see this interaction between the Son of Man, who is putting the little horn down, and the little horn who looks like a man, but he's not a man, because he's Antichrist. He is challenging the authority of Jesus in Daniel 7. And this little horn exercises dominion like he is Adam. It exercises dominion like the Son of Man who is the second Adam, but he is not. And during the Middle Ages, he hijacks the Christian church. He takes it into the medieval captivity. He brings the truth and throws it to the ground. And he changes times and law. He is the Antichrist power that great Christian Bible students have recognized from Hippolytus all the way down to our present time. Now, this little horn is the church-state kingdom of the Middle Ages. that claim to forgive sins and hold the keys of the kingdom in its hands. Thus, it claimed dominion. Now, Daniel describes this kingdom as an imposter. And so, when you read Daniel 7, the judgment sits after the Middle Ages, after the fourth great world empire, as we move toward the divided Europe in the 1800s. The judgment sits... And dominion is taken away from this Antichrist power. And it's given to Jesus Christ who is, in fact, the Son of Man and the second Adam. And guess what? It doesn't happen here on earth. It doesn't happen in some global war. It happens in heaven in a pre-advent judgment when Christ comes to his Father to receive the kingdom. It is a pre-advent judgment. Look at Daniel 7.26. Now here's what happens to the horn. The court shall sit in judgment. And what does the text say? His dominion, what? Shall be taken away. So the mess that this little horn did in the Middle Ages is going to be removed in this heavenly judgment to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Now look at the good side, verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. You know, the Bible is absolutely clear that the kingdom of heaven will be given to the saints of the Most High. You know, I like Christmas. You like Christmas? I like getting presents. In fact, you can send some in the mail and it won't hurt my feelings. I'm just kidding. I'm having fun with you.
2: More with Pastor Michael Oxentenko Tenko in just a moment. First of all, this very important message. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area this Sunday at 5 p.m., July the 21st, Please join us at the Reaching Hearts Church, 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, for our annual radio fundraising event. We want to thank all of our donors with a special dinner and concert featuring vocalist Carla Rivera. Our guest speaker is pastor, author, and global evangelist Mark Finley, who has held hundreds of evangelistic meetings in over 80 countries. You are sure to be inspired with his devotional message. Pastor Michael oxen will also be there. I'll have more details at the close of our broadcast today, so please stay tuned. Here now, once again, Pastor Michael Oxen-Tanko.
1: God is going to give us the kingdom. So the Bible is clear that the king of heaven will be given to the saints of the Most High. But in the parable of Matthew 22, verse 1, Jesus plainly states that the king of heaven is like a marriage feast that the king gave for his son. Now, friend... The Bible is absolutely clear that the king of heaven will be given to the saints of the Most High. But in the parable of Matthew 22, verse 1, Jesus plainly states that the king of heaven is like a marriage feast that a king gave for his son. The kingdom feast, now think about it, it's not your feast or my feast. In the parable, the feast is God's feast for his son. You got to keep the focus here on the text. Now, in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, we kind of see why that is. Because this heavenly judgment just before Jesus comes, in some wonderful way, is connected to the marriage feast idea in Jesus' parables. Because both revolve around the kingdom. The kingdom feast, the kingdom judgment. Look at Daniel 7 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. We often read that when we think, oh, Jesus is coming to the earth. No. You look at the context, he's not coming to the earth. In the context, he's coming to God the Father in heaven. He's going closer in, into the most holy place, into the presence of God in heaven. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days. In fact, the Aramaic indicates he was carried in like a royal pontiff, carried into the presence of the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. I mean, this is the most holy place in heaven. This is the Ark of the Covenant, the throne room of God. Verse 14, and what happens right there where God's heart and God's home is found. And to him, that's the Son of Man, not the little horn, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Friend, in this pre-advent heavenly judgment of Daniel 7, just before Jesus returns, God the Father gives Jesus the kingdom. He gives it to His Son right there in the presence of millions of angels. It is the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world. It is the fifth great kingdom that one that is established on the authority of God's Word. This is the marriage of the Lamb to His bride. This is the very event that is the focal point of what the cross accomplished that will be followed immediately by the coming of Christ. Friend, the judgment. You know, sometimes we think in our church, well, the judgment, some pre-event judgment. I'm so scared of that. Why would you want to be scared about receiving the kingdom? You hear me? Why would you want to be terrified about Christ representing you before His Father? You see, the devil has attacked the beautiful teaching of the pre-Advent investigative judgment to undermine the truth that Christ stands for us in the presence of God at the end of the age so we don't have to stand before him knocking with our knees and afraid of God because of our failings. And so people have stripped the church of this vital teaching that is meant to encourage the church for the second coming of Christ. In the pre-Advent investigative judgment of Daniel 7 when the books are open. Before Jesus returns, He walks into the throne room of God the Father to receive His kingdom, the marriage of the Lamb. In Luke 18.12, Jesus tells us plainly that Jesus receives His kingdom in heaven, not on earth. You know, He can't come here to receive it. He had to go to His Father's house. Look at Luke nineteen verse twelve. He said, therefore, a nobleman went where? What does the text say? Went to a far country for what purpose? To receive a kingdom, and then what does He do? And then return. Now, this is Christ." He's a person of noble birth. He is the Son of Man, the Prince of the universe. He goes in that far-off country at His ascension to heaven for the express purpose of receiving His kingdom at the end of the Middle Ages, in the great marriage of Christ to His people, and then returning with the kingdom. That is why Jesus called His kingdom the kingdom of heaven. You see, the judgment is pictured as a marriage of Jesus to His kingdom from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. How many of you like going to weddings? I like marrying people who stay married. That's a fact. I've married one or two that didn't, but I labored long. I like them when they stay married. I love them, if they don't as well. I'll pastor you anyway. But I want you in the kingdom, and I want you loving each other. So it's called the kingdom of heaven because this great connection of the marriage of Christ to His people As important as the cross is, it doesn't happen there. It happens in the presence of His Father in this pre-Event judgment. When Jesus receives the kingdom, He will be married to His people forever. How does Jesus marry His kingdom in the heavenly judgment? I'm going to tell you how He does it. You can write it down. One person at a time. Because the judgment focuses on one person from Adam to the end at a time. Christ was very clear in Revelation 3.5 that He will confess our names before the Father and His holy angels that way. Look at the text here. He who conquers shall be clad thus in white garments. And then I like this. You can underline your Bible. And I will not block His name out of the book of life. Isn't that good? I mean, look. You confess Christ... Before men, you love Him. You put your life out for Him. He says, I will not blot His name out of the book of life. I will confess His name before my Father and His holy angels. Have you ever been ashamed of somebody? Has anyone ever been ashamed of you? Okay, now now look. When I've messed up, when I've really let someone down, And someone stands up for me and says, well, you know, Mike may not be perfect, but I'm a friend of Mike's. Wouldn't that make you feel good? That's what Jesus is going to do. Let me just give you an example of this. You know, my name comes up in the judgment. Let's start with Righteous Abel. You know, you won't have too much hard time with Righteous Abel. Righteous Abel, his name comes up, the first martyr in the history of the world. He says, Lord, Father, Abel was mine. I confess him before you and the holy angels because he died for me. Not hard, right? It's a little harder with David who killed Uriah. But he says, you know, David repented. He loved me. He was a man after God's heart. He became a man after God's heart again. Yes, murder is an awful crime. I confess Him before you and the holy angels. Look at the cross of Christ. Look where I bled and died for Him. He is my friend. Will you accept Him into eternity? Then he moves through Mary Magdalene. All her sordid history. He says, I'm not interested in talking about that today In the great judgment here. Father, she washed my feet. She was there at the garden tomb. She loved me. Father, I confess her name before the holy angels and you as mine. Will you give her to me? And one name at a time, from righteous Abel to the end, he confesses the names of his people until his kingdom is fully formed. Friend, this is good news. The judgment Daniel 7 is the marriage and the feast that follows is the second coming. And what transpires, Christ comes for his bride to take her to the marriage feast. Now, if you don't understand how an ancient wedding worked in Jesus' day, you really don't know what's going on. Let me explain it to you. There was a period of betrothal and at the period of betrothal, the groom would show up, the bride would meet, they'd be introduced and they'd have this hoopla, this white canopy that they'd put over them and they'd all dance around it really happy and the like. They were being betrothed and then they would stay apart, but together, you know what I mean? Kind of dating, but nothing more for a while, sometimes a year or more. And then after that, The marriage time came. Now in American weddings, what do we do? We come to the altar and the bride and groom are there and the family, right? And they exchange their vows. That is not as romantic as a Jewish wedding. In a Jewish wedding back then, the bride stayed in her house. The groom went to his father's house. And there he married his bride who was at her house. How do you like that? And then to make it more profound... She was waiting, wondering if it all worked out, not sure when her groom would return. And then suddenly in triumphal procession, the father and the bride and everyone would come and gather the bride at her house, but they would not stay there. They would take her from her house and go back to the father's house for the marriage supper. And after the marriage supper, they would have the joy of going to their house and living for the rest of their lives. Now that is a picture of how Bible prophecy works. At Mount Sinai, Christ and the Father came down. There was the white pillar of fire and cloud. And Christ was betrothed to his people in the form of the Jewish nation. He called a people from the seed of Abraham to be his. And he was with them in the betrothal period. John the Baptist went as far to say that I am the friend of the bridegroom, but I am not the bridegroom. And then, you know, the tragedy is they killed the bridegroom, but he got back up. He was resurrected. And then he ascended to heaven to his father's house to receive his kingdom. You see, he was a nobleman at the end of the age. In the marriage, which is the pre-advent judgment, and in his father's house, he confesses before his father his oath to be married to us as a people and each one by name. And once the marriage is finished, which means the judgment is finished, he returns from his father's house to come to this world, the bride's house, and to take us in triumphal session back to his father's house for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And for 1,000 years, the book of Revelation says, we'll be in heaven not here But you know you got to settle down and live with your bride, right? The New Jerusalem says John was taken to a high mountain. And he saw the New Jerusalem coming down from God as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, God the Father, God the Son, the Bride, the New Jerusalem, it all moves here. Because a recreated earth will be the home of the saved for all eternity. So if you know how a Jewish wedding works, you know how prophecy works. There's no secret rapture because the procession is glorious. You pick up the bride at her house. You take her home to your father's house. Christ is coming to take us to heaven. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice, the book of Revelation says, and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he was set upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, there's so much information in the first part of the kingdom parable that we were looking at. Go back to Matthew 22, 1-3. And again Jesus spoke to them in a parable saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the marriage feast, and they would not come. So in the parable, the feast is for the Son and no one else. The kingdom feast belongs to Jesus. God has set the judgment up, the pre-advent judgment, which is the marriage, for the purpose of giving Christ everyone Christ wants. Everyone He claimed at the cross who has stayed with Him, that Christ will confess. The kingdom marriage is for Jesus. You know, we sometimes think the whole world rotates around us. Right? You know, I'm having a hard time today. You know, the universe will come to an end. You know, we can hear it in other crazy ways. Well, if I'm not good enough, Christ will lose the great controversy. You ever hear that kind of stuff? Christ is not going to lose the great controversy with Satan because you are having a bad day. Because He won it at the cross. He secured it at the cross. The Son of God wants you in the kingdom
2: that will conclude the first portion of the marriage feast today's reaching your heart if you are in the washington dc area this sunday at 5 p.m july the 21st please join us at the reaching hearts church 6100 brooklyn bridge road laurel maryland for our annual radio fundraising event we want to thank all of our donors with a special dinner and concert featuring vocalist carla rivera Our guest speaker is pastor, author, and global evangelist, Mark Finley, who has held hundreds of evangelistic meetings in over 80 countries. You are sure to be inspired with his devotional message. If you're a regular listener to the broadcast and would like to meet Pastor Michael Oxentenko, then please join us this Sunday at 5 p.m. at 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, for the event. Please RSVP at ReachingHearts.org slash Radio Dinner. That's ReachingHearts.org slash Radio Dinner. Once again, ReachingHearts.org slash Radio Dinner. And thanks for listening to Reaching Your Heart.